0: So, just like Paul says, we're carrying on with the series about the kings and the prophets of the divided kingdom. And today we're looking at this chappie, King Jehu. All right? Now, of course, it's great, we've all seen this, or most of us will have seen this, we know that God is speaking, God still speaks today, just as he was speaking thousands and hundreds of years ago in those times as well. And the, the great thing is that hopefully some of you are still using these two things. So the reading plan, which is great, because if you're using that, that's over halfway now that you're doing, sort of going through Chronicles and Kings, because it kind of puts how the prophets fit into the Kings. Because in the Bible itself, they're kind of in a different place, aren't they? So it's hard to sort of see how they dovetail together. So by using that, if you're not so sure about it already, that can help you. And of course, the other thing that can help you is this list on this A3. Both of these things are outside because this helps you as you're looking through and doing your homework between each uh, Sunday morning uh, talk. You can look at the next person because the uh, list is on the back page. You can look who it is, look at who the king is, and then just look at them up here and just think, oh, I'll just read what's going on in their life. And then if you read that section, it helps you to be uh, ready and prepared when you come on a Sunday morning, if you can, because some of these kings, there's so much you can say about them. So if you read sort of the chapters that are there, then it helps you to have a bit of background information about what's going on. So that's really useful. Just to remind you, for this divided kingdom, Rehoboam and Jeroboam were the first two kings of the divided kingdom, and before them came Saul, David, and Solomon. And we were saying recently that... Uh, they had a united kingdom, but it wasn't really united. There was stuff going on where their families weren't united and the country itself wasn't united. So that's why it's united in inverted commas. So King Jehu, if you sort of look on your list here, you'll see that there's two chapters that talk about him in the Bible. There's little bits elsewhere as well, but it's mainly two kings, uh, chapters 9 and chapters 10. So, you might have read that he's the 10th king of the Northern Kingdom. We've had sort of nine already, and he's the one sort of in the middle, really. And so it's interesting that he's the 10th king. Also, you might have read that he's the, uh, he reigned for a long time. Oh, a quick question from the poll. Is there something you've pressed at the back there? That's something I've never seen before. A quick question from the congregation. What's going on here then? I think it's an anonymous person from the congregation who has asked this question. Why is King Jehu and King Ahab from two weeks ago only mentioned in two kings? Ooh, what an interesting question. King Rehoboam, the I and Jehoshaphat are mentioned in Kings and Chronicles. So whoever asked that question, thank you very much. I'm sure if Jean was speaking, he'd give a much better answer than I'm going to give. But at least we're going to think about it. Because why did that happen? Why have we got some kings in both the Kings, book of Kings and in the book of Chronicles? Let's think about it just briefly before we get on to thinking about King Jehu. First of all, I wonder... It's not, it is a rhetorical question you don't need to answer. I wonder, who wrote the books? Who wrote the book of Kings? Who wrote the book of Chronicles? We're going to talk about it in a moment. And what was their purpose in writing those books? Because if we know those bits of information, then surely we'll have an idea why uh, we've got some in one book and some in both books. Kings, you might remember, isn't really two books. It's one book, when it was originally written. But the reason it's sort of separated for us is because in the olden days, they didn't have books like this, did they? What did they have instead? Scrolls, Scrolls, right. So all those years ago, if we tried to get the book of one kings and the book of two kings on one scroll, they'd have difficulty. Because there's a lot of chapters. So what they did, years and years and years ago, was to split it into two. Because then it's far easier to have one book on one scroll and the next book on the other scroll. Because paper was expensive, wasn't it? And to, and to make it wasn't easy. And so they were split into two books, just like Samuel. Really, that's one book. But we split it into two, or we, as in centuries and centuries ago, split it into two books to make it easier with a scroll, Kings covers the period from David's death, which was around about 970 BC, to the exile of Judah, and Chronicles goes back much further. So where does Chronicles go back to? If if Kings starts with about David, where does Chronicles start? Adam. Anyone want to tell me? Thank you. Oh, it's great having... You just sort of, you know all about it. It's brilliant. So, Chronicles starts with Adam. So, that's centuries before David existed, was not it? So, that's different. And Chronicles is much less critical of David and of Saul, uh, of David and Solomon. And it's mainly Chronicles, this is, is concerned with the kingdom of Judah. So, it concentrates on the things that are happening in the temple and uh, the worship there and isn't so much thinking about the northern kings. That's why you might sort of think, well, Elijah and Elisha, brilliant people. But where do we find them? Because they're northern prophets, we don't really hear much about them in two chronicles, apart from a letter that Elijah wrote. We just hear about them in kings, because that's what was intended there. And this paper gives you ideas about who were the northern prophets, who were the southern prophets, so you can see that some of the uh, kings definitely are in both books, and the northern kings are just in the king's book, because of where they're from. By the way, we call Chronicles, Chronicles, because of an Italian scholar, called Jerome. And he was in the 5th century, and it's him that gave us the name Chronicles. Because in Hebrew, if we were going to translate their name, it's called the matter of the days. And if we're going to think about it from the Greek translation, that means things are left on one side. Going back to who wrote it, some people think that Ezra wrote Chronicles, and some people think that Jeremiah wrote Kings doesn't matter really, does it, who wrote it? But it it matters that we sort of know when it was written and for what purpose, I think. In the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation, Chronicles is put between Kings and Ezra, Nehemiah, which is where we get it now. But in the Hebrew uh, Bible, Chronicles is the last book. So it's kind of a different place. But again, it's over the centuries that people that were dealing with it, they changed it. By the way, this is interesting as well. In the Vulgate, which is what Jerome, the Italian scholar, translated, he didn't call one Samuel and two Samuel, one Samuel and two Samuel. What did he call them? Anyone remember? One Kings and two Kings. Yeah. So, what did Jerome, and this is the same in still some English translations nowadays, not many of them, but a few do this as well. So if 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are called 1 Kings and 2 Kings, what are 1 Kings and 2 Kings called? 3 and 4. Gold star. That's exactly it. So in some Bibles, it says 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 3 Kings, 4 Kings. And that just shows what the story is and what it's all about. So it's not separating them off so much, but we're thinking, oh yeah, that's all about the Kings. So that's just about bit of background information. There's more background information coming, I'm sure, but uh, that's enough just to think about. Back to Jehu. So he was the tenth king of the northern kingdom, and he reigned for 28 years, so that makes him the second longest after uh, King Jeroboam II, who came about 30 years later. And unlike uh, whatever it's called, I've forgotten what it is now, uh, probably the best lager in the world? Carlsberg. Carlsberg. Okay, so Carlsberg is probably the best lager in the world. People say that King Jehu was probably the best king in Israel. Now, I don't know if he should have a medal or a free cheers for King Jehu for being the best king of Israel, but really, he did do some good things, but he did some pretty terrible things too. So he wasn't all good. So let's not even give him one cheer, I think, because some of the things he did were good, But some of the things he did weren't good at all. One more bit. This is a bit more background information. I love going to the British Museum. And perhaps some of you have been there as well. And in the British Museum, there's this uh, big sort of piece of stone called the Black Obelisk. And there's loads of other interesting stuff, of course, in the British Museum. But this is something that's amazing because people think that this... Uh, bow in person which is one of the scenes on the Black Obelisk is King Jehu so probably this is one of the first Israelite kings, can you see him? Yeah, he's bowing down there's his head, there's his torso his legs and he's kind of in submission To King Shalmaneser, the third. He is an Assyrian king. Yeah, so the Assyrians were the superpowers at the time, just like America, China, Russia kind of thing is. So there's lots of super... Well, there weren't lots of superpowers. This was the superpower at the time, the Assyrians. Then, of course, Babylonians came and the Romans and the Greeks. These were all superpowers, whereas before... It was just like a, a lot of local tribes and little nations that would fight against Israel. But Assyria was perhaps one of the first superpowers of the, uh, of the world. It was discovered in 1846, by the way, by a, uh, an archaeologist. And um, people think it was made in about 830 BC. So, in Two Kings, we read about King Jehu, And it's 2 Kings chapter 9 and chapter 10. And I'm going to read a little bit from verse 1 and 3 of chapter 9. If you read the two chapters, you'll find out about his life. And it's amazing how they talk a lot about King Jehu. So this is 2 Kings chapter 9. You read a lot about King Jehu for just a short period, and then there's just a sentence for maybe the rest of his reign. So maybe one year of his reign is almost the whole two chapters. And then for one verse or two verses, that's for the next 27 years. It's just quite amazing, isn't it, how the author, whoever he was, wrote that down. So this is 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, Took your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go to Ramath Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat. Now, of course, that isn't Jehoshaphat that we were thinking about last week with Gordon Neal. This is a different Jehoshaphat. So, because Jehoshaphat that Gordon spoke about was a king of Judah. And I remember him talking about sort of dinner money and all those sort of things. And I was thinking, yeah, well, maybe it was a common name because there's other Jehoshaphats in the Bible. This is one of them. So when you get there, verse 2, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, not the king of Judah, but he was the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, this is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. (laughs) So that's great, isn't it? And that's definitely what he did. He did all those things. And he run for his life, because of course, what this prophet was doing really was treason. It was a coup, wasn't it? Because there was a king already, King Joram. And so he's setting up this other king, King Jehu, because of what God said. It wasn't just some great idea. He knew God was saying, do this. And so he did it. But there was a king in Israel. And so if you were anointing someone else as king of Israel, what's this other king going to say? He's going to say, I'll have you, mates," kind of thing, isn't he? So that's why he scarped because he knew it would be trouble. Yes, exactly. There'd be trouble if he hung around and he didn't want any of that. He didn't know how he was going to react, this uh, king. And so we read about in chapters 9 and 10, how uh, Jehu king's, kills the previous king. And then he he kills the previous king's mother as well, who was Jezebel. Now, we've heard about Jezebel the other week when we were thinking about Ahab. Not a good woman, evil, horrible. But it's not a nice death that she has. So if you read chapters 9 and 10, you'll read about her death a little bit. And then he kills some of the king's cousins as well, all of them. And all of the servants of Baal, I don't know if you remember the story, how he invited the servants of Baal to come to the temple of Baal, and then he sort of got them all worshipping, and then he scarpered, but there were lots of soldiers outside, and then they went in, and what did he do to all the Baal's servants, the Baal worshippers? Kill them. Yeah, not one escaped. So there was a lot of bloodshed, sort of killing the king's family, killing the uh, servants of Baal, all kinds of things. But that's what he felt God was saying, although some people think that Jehu maybe took it a step too far because even though uh, Jehu is really mentioned in 2 Kings 9 and 10, he's also mentioned in one of the prophets, uh, Hosea. And that sort of says about how maybe Jehu did it too far, and maybe did it in a nasty way. So that's something you could look up and explore, his uh, mention in Hosea. Let's have a look at uh, chapter 9, verse 22. And this is him talking to King uh, Joram, the uh, previous king. they kind of met on a a field. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? And this is a really interesting phrase that Jehu replies in verse 22. How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abounds. So already we can see that Jehu is right at the beginning of his kingship and he's saying all this bad stuff needs to go. There can't be any peace because all of this is just going to be wrong. can't be any of that. And also, in chapter 10, verse 16, we get a bit of a heart attitude of what Jehu's like. And this time, Jehu is talking to another person. And Jehu says, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him ride along in his chariot. And I love the word zeal. It really means abounding and really going for it and really trying. So he was saying he had a lot of zeal for the Lord. He really wanted to do what the Lord was saying. Jehu was definitely God's man. He might have had evilness and as well as good bits to his character, but he was definitely God's man. If we go back in time, just a a few chapters, if we sort of think about Elijah, who of course came before Elisha, and have a look at 1 Kings 19 verses 15 and 16. This is God speaking. The Lord said to Elijah, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. That was one of their neighbouring countries, and he did do that. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. That's the person we're talking about today. And, uh, and then anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, to succeed you as prophet. So it wasn't just Elisha sending one of his company of prophets to go and anoint Jehu, Elijah had sort of heard it from God before, saying, yeah, Jehu's going to be anointed. And of course, Elijah went up to heaven before he had a chance to do it, and that's why Elisha did that. There were 20 rulers in Israel, in, um, and that lasted for 210 years, and there were 20 rulers in Judah and that was over 345 years but the interesting thing is those 20 rulers in uh, in Israel they were in nine different dynastic houses whereas the ones in Judah were just in one almost there was one kind of rogue person that was there as well but more or less there was one dyn- dyn- dynastic house and that was the house of David wasn't it so again i think that's really interesting how there were so many houses because they were going against God and so he ended the house and then someone else came along. Two words that begin with a B. Now, Gordon last week was mentioning one of them and he said the word because. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because that's who Gordon was talking about last week. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. And that's 2 Chronicles 17, verse 3. There's another B word, and you can see what it is. Jehu eliminated Baal worship from Israel, but he did not turn away from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, worshipping the gold calves that were in Bethel and Dan. If you were here a few weeks ago when Andy was speaking, he was sort of saying how there is this kind of basic sort of story going on, this basic basic phrase that happens, how often the kings in Judah followed David's heart and followed God, whereas the kings in Israel followed what Jeroboam did. And so that was not good. In the message for chapter 10, verse 28, it says, But for all that... Jehu didn't turn back from the sins of Jehoboam, son of Nebat, the, son, the sins that dragged Israel into a life of sin, the golden calves in Bethel and Dan stayed. And it's that didn't turn back, how we often hear when people talk about repentance, that it's us going one way, and then we do this 180 degree turn and say, I'm going the other way because I know now that going that way isn't the way that God wants me to go but I need to turn around and change. And that's something that Jehu didn't really do. He did do all these good things. He sorted out Ahab's family, and he sorted out the Baal worship, but the golden calves in Bethel and Dan, he left. He tolerated them. It didn't make him feel uneasy. It didn't make him feel that something had to be done about that. He did what was right and godly at the beginning of his reign, but he didn't carry it through. The challenges that he met at the beginning, and he dealt with in a godly way, he didn't deal with in a godly way later on. And that makes me think about my life. And perhaps it makes you think about your life as well. About how maybe the the walk we've had with God so far in our lives how we've been strengthened by what he's done and, and found, found love and acceptance for him and done big things or, or little things sometimes, but done what God says. We still today and tomorrow got to decide, I'm not going to follow my way, I'm going to make a turn. I'm going to go this way, I'm going to follow God the way he tells me to go. We can be strengthened by what we think about from our past, But we've still got to make the right decisions today. We've still got to listen to God and say, yes, Lord, I'm going to put my faith in you today. So whatever the demands of the day are, or whatever the ups and downs are, I'm going to put my hand in your hand, and together we're going to face them together. Because Jehu was appointed by God. He was divinely appointed. And he was anointed by a prophet. And we know that Jehu was God's man. But that didn't guarantee that for the rest of his life, he would do what God said. It didn't guarantee that in the nitty-gritty, he wouldn't do it properly. Let's think of a more modern example. It's probably one you've thought about before. What event, and you can look it up if you like and tell me, what event happened before the feeding of the 5,000? What was going on? course, it depends on what gospel you read, because it's interesting, just while you're looking things up, it's sort of uh, Luke 9, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that's in every gospel. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Really good. So Luke 9, verse 10, what happened before? What were the disciples doing before the feeding of the 5,000? They were sent out by God, by Jesus. And Jesus said to them, take nothing for the journey. They were going on a mission. Take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your your feet as a testimony against them. So the disciples have been sent by Jesus on a mission, taking nothing with them, except the power and authority of Jesus. Wow. I wonder what that was like if you were one of Jesus' disciples and he says, I've got this itinerary for you. I want you to go there, there, there and there. We don't know how long, maybe several weeks, maybe, I don't know. But they were doing all this and they were just going around, praying for people, seeing healings, on marvellous things because when they returned, in verse 10 it says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. I what they were like. I say, oh, Jesus, this is what happened because of you. Oh, Jesus, this is what happened. You wouldn't believe it. Of course he does because he was there as well. But you wouldn't believe it because this happened and that happened. I bet they were really excited about God's power in them having people's lives changed. So Jesus then leads them away and just says, goes to a quiet place. But because Jesus is like a magnet and people are attracted to him, Crowds come, thousands of people, as we know, 5,000 men as well as the women and the children. And so they've just been on a mission, a supernatural mission, where they've been doing all these exciting things. And Jesus, sort of, when he sees that there's lots of people and it's just the fish and the loaves to eat with, what does he say to them? Does he say, it's all right, go to the local Tesco's, they're open till 8 o'clock, so it's all right, just go there and get some food. I think Jesus was thinking, they've just been on a mission and done all these marvellous things for me. I wonder if it's still going to carry on. I wonder if they're still going to believe that even now I'm with them, that they can still do that. The Disciples just wanted to go to the shop, didn't they? How did they react? Verse 13, they didn't have the faith, but they just wanted to go to the shops just to go and get more things. So they'd been on this mission, really sort of God was great and everything was brilliant and lovely. But then when they come back, it was like, it hadn't happened. They just just thought naturally, rather than God was in them. Which is perhaps a little bit like Jehu. How he started with the zeal of the Lord, but then he just let things go which shouldn't have been left. I wonder, what's your next step in life? Is it a large one? Is it predictable? Is it small? Is it easy, surprising, risky or stimulating? Perhaps on a Sunday morning, sometimes you feel, yeah, great Lord, things you've spoken to me this morning, I've really heard you, I want to follow you, and you're going for it because God's spoken to you. Or maybe you've been to Spring Harvest or some other event like that, and God speaks to you and you just say, Lord, thank you for speaking to me, my life has changed. And it might last for a while. But then Monday or Tuesday comes, and life is back to normal. You see, the normal people that you meet the ones that kind of rrr, rrr, about you or oh, give us a cup of tea will you sort of, or they're not very nice and instead of keeping the zeal somehow it kind of diminishes we need to do what we need to do every day is submit our lives to God and say God today is your day how can I encourage others, how can I bless others I've got another question I'll oh, look my questions to you. Who? You might not see it so clearly, so I've put a clue at the bottom. Who's this? And the clue is, it happened on the 21st of July, 1969. Although if you're in America, that's why I put it in brackets, they say it happened on the 20th of July, 1969. Yeah, so this is Neil Armstrong, right. Can anyone remember his phrase? Paul, you were there. Not, not on the moon. <laughs> you're old enough to remember that's what I'm saying so can you remember Paul what he said that's it yeah this is brilliant because one small step for man now do you think Neil Armstrong did it all by himself going to the moon sorting it all out and so that's why he was going down on the steps and that's one small step for me oh that was nothing that was easy Did he do it on his own? No. I've made a list of all the people that might have helped him. It's not a long list, but it's just to get us thinking. I think hundreds of thousands of people helped Neil Armstrong to make that small step. Designers. Builders. Scientists. Mathematicians. Tea makers. Cake makers. Flag makers, because they needed a flag. Yeah. Typists. Oh, and loads more are so you can think of loads more as well. But hundreds of thousands of people would have helped Neil and Buzz, and I think there's 12 people altogether that have walked on the moon, was it? Something like that. But all those 12 people, hundreds of thousands of people would have been used to put them on the moon. They couldn't have done it for themselves. It's just like us. We've been thinking briefly about what's our next small step, What about just thinking a little bit more broadly? How about those sitting around you? We can hinder or we can help people that are taking their next step for God. We can say to them, did God say that, Jean? Don't believe that. Have a think again, mate. Or we can say, Margaret, you listen to God. You hear God. I'm gonna listen to what you've got to say because you hear from God. Or we might sort of say, Jill, yeah, you're great. Oh, okay, I better not carry on too much because it will just all come out. So, we can, because we can, we're married, you see, if you didn't know, we're married. So, so we could all say marvellous things about each other, or we can say, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think you can do that. John F. Kennedy, I've, I've got the date somewhere, 25th of May, 1961, He said that America, by the end of the decade, should have a man or men go to the moon and back again. So it took eight years of hundreds of thousands of people working their their hardest to make sure that Neil and his friends would get on the moon. And we've got a place in not just ourselves helping ourselves to take a step of faith, a big one or a small one or anything in between, But we've got to help other people as well. So we're not just thinking about your, like our next step of faith, but we're thinking about true discipleship involving deep relationships. Jesus didn't simply lead a weekly Bible study. He lived life with his disciples and taught through actions as well as words. And that's Francis Chan who said that. So if we're going to help each other, it can't be that we just meet on a Sunday or we meet on a Monday or Wednesday We've got to invest our lives into other people. We've got to encourage them. We've got to be with them every step of the way. And that's perhaps what God is calling us to do. I wonder as a church, collectively, what's God calling us to do together, this year and next year? What big things or what small things are going to happen? I wasn't here uh, when the church moved from the previous building in Clinic Drive to this building here, but I think it was about 15 years ago. And if you ever sort of wander in and you've got a few minutes to spare, there's an article in the foyer from a magazine that talks about it. Now, if I don't know how many people were in Clinic Drive, how many people were in the previous building? Put your hand up. So these are the people we could go and talk to and say, well, what was it like? What was it like moving from one building? on the other part of town, to another part of the town. What was it like? It was a step of faith, wasn't it? An answer to prayer. But maybe ask them around and just say, well, what was it like? Was it collectively an, a predictable and easy or risky? What sort of step of faith was it? Because maybe, well, not maybe, definitely, we will be as a church taking steps of faith over the next few months and years. Maybe bigger than that or smaller. But God's calling us to do something different, something new, not just to perhaps rest on our laurels and say, Lord, years ago you did this for us, now we can just rest. Now we can just be like Jehu and do nothing and just let everything else happen. God's calling us to keep on taking our steps of faith because he's still writing our history and he wants us to be part of it. Whatever sort of coat you wear or whatever our favourite colour is, God wants us to be part of the vibrancy of this church so that when he writes the history of this church, we all get a mention in it because we're all disciples, all following God, seeking him. We know already there's lots of empty chairs and we've talked about that before. But of course, the empty chair idea is great because it looks, it makes us look around and say, yes, Lord, who can be sitting there? Who can, who can I invite? Who can I pray for that can know you? We're all taking steps of faith individually and as a church, but we can't just sit and wait. We're moving forward and God is moving with us. Sometimes I look at cartoons and some of them make me smile. This one perhaps might make you smile. It's kind of some people, a committee, introduce, uh, sort of interrogating a minister who wants to be their pastor. Okay, so give me a sort of... Uh, okay, I'll do it in an old person, because these are old people. We're hoping you'll lead us on a journey of transformation without requiring any real changes. So that's just ridiculous, isn't it? That They're sort of suggesting that we want ch- to change the church, but ourselves, we don't want to change. We don't want to be transformed, they're saying in the cartoon. But God is calling us today to be transformed by his power in his way. Not to say, Lord, change those around us, change the estate, change the town, shops are closing, this is happening, that's happening, Lord, change the town. Perhaps God is saying to you, don't rest, don't just do like Jehu started off pretty well, but then did bad things because he wasn't following God. We've got to listen to God and say, Lord, I want to follow you, I want to hear from you. I'm going to do what you say. There's this verse in Isaiah 43. That may be appropriate. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And that's Isaiah chapter 43. I'm wondering, how will God surprise us this year in these new things? Or in the old things that are perhaps just a little bit different, how can we? Be, how will we be saying this year that could only have been God who did that? I've got advance notice for you. We're we'll talking about it at the House Group on Monday, because on issue twenty-five of the Onward, which comes out on the first and the third uh, Sunday of the month. We're only on issue two, but you can imagine, issue 25, Sunday the 7th of January 2018, we've got a prayer special. Yeah, because what I want us to do this year is, if God answers your prayers in any way, let me know. Send me an email, write it on a piece of paper, because in that issue, the first issue of next year, we want to write down, print, all the prayers that God has answered this last year, i.e. this coming year. Because we want to remember what God's done. We don't want to just sort of flippantly say, oh, thank you God for answering our prayer, and forget about it. We want to remember. And so by doing that, if you send me any prayers, as God answers them, big or small, anything in between, and then God will help us to celebrate together as a family over the different things that God has done in our lives. So that's exciting. It could be A really thick edition it could be pages and pages of people answering of of God's answered prayers but what I don't want to happen is I just do a selection like a selection box that's no good is it if God is answering our prayers and you tell me about it I will definitely put it in and so if it's pages and pages and pages fantastic why because God is answering our prayers if it's just two or three prayers from a congregation of maybe 50, 60 or more sometimes, over a year, that's not very good, is it? Where's our faith? Where's our Christianity? If there's just two or three prayers that are written down, and that we can say, Ray. But really, if there's dozens and dozens and dozens of prayers, sort of written down, answers to prayers, written down, how's that going to make us feel about God? It's going to make me feel, whoa, about God, because... It just reminds us how God is so great and so wonderful. You Know what I mean? Yeah. So that's an idea for this coming year. Send me an email. As soon as you feel God's answered a prayer, don't forget about it. Send me an email or put it on a piece of paper because then we can glorify and celebrate God together. Are we listening as God is speaking? How should we respond? We saw this slide earlier. We've all got to make a response as God speaks to us and God certainly is speaking to us and it's up to us how individually we take our steps and it's up to us how collectively as a church as a congregation of people we encourage each other or not how we celebrate together in the good times and come and cry with each other in the hard times but God calls us to respond to him and that's what we need to do respond not just by sitting but taking the steps of faith large or small but taking steps of faith together and on our own so we're going to pray and then we're going to worship God and say Lord help us to do that so let's pray together just now Lord we thank you that you are with us whether in the big parts of life or just the normal humdrum of life Lord But Lord, whatever steps we take and whatever chapters of life we're in, Lord, we want to be doing it in obedience to you. We want to hear you, Lord. Lord, we don't want to be tolerant of things that shouldn't be in our lives. Help us to get rid of them, to say stop the end. (coughs) Help us, Lord, to follow you. Help us, Lord, to be encouragers of other people so that when they take steps forward, we can be with them and encourage them, being a disciples together as a family. So thank you, Lord, for all the good things you've got ahead for us. We don't know what it is, but Lord, we know that you're with us. And so knowing that you're with us makes all the difference. Things we couldn't contemplate on our own, Lord, we know can be done because you give us the initiative, you give us the anointing, you give us the freedom to do things. So, Lord, we pray even today you will help us to be like that, to say thank you, Lord, and I will follow you. Amen.